Thanks for watching this video from Cherry Hills Church. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. When I was seven years old, I accepted Christ into my life. And about a month after that happened, I had the great privilege of being baptized by my own dad in the church that he was serving as a pastor in. And I don't have a lot in my life what I would call spiritual experiences. In fact, I I hesitate even sharing this, but my baptism was definitely one of those spiritual experiences. I remember coming up out of the water and experiencing this overwhelming sense of warmth and this light. And the next thing I really realized, I'm in this bear hug from my earthly father, and he's whispering into my ear, I'm so proud of you, son. And I kid you not, even at the age of seven, I knew in that moment that my heavenly father was saying the same thing to me. This is a moment in my life I will never forget. And this morning, we have the opportunity to look at a story of another baptism, the baptism of Jesus, which is followed by his temptation. And I know for the people involved in this baptism, it was a moment that they will never forget either. In fact, this moment in Jesus' life is so important. Every one of the gospel writers records it. And so today, we're going to kind of unpack that and understand why is this so important and what does it have to do with us still today? If you haven't been with us, we are starting a new series. We started three weeks ago, two weeks ago, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. We just called this series The Way of Jesus. And if you're following on your notes, the whole point of this series, why we're spending time in Mark's Gospel, is we are spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. We want to spend time looking at the words Jesus spoke, at the works Jesus performed, and mostly at the way he lived his life so that we too, as his disciples, can learn how to follow him. I love what Brian talked about a couple of weeks ago, quoting Dallas Willard, right? The goal isn't just to do what Jesus would do. The goal is to do what Jesus would do if he were us. And that's the idea of learning about the way of Jesus. And so let's take our Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have some available in the seats underneath you there. You can find this wonderful story on page 812 of those black Bibles. I'm telling you, I am not overselling it when I say that these two events, the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, are some of the most theologically important texts in the entire Bible. Because in this passage, we learn two very important things. We first learn who Jesus really is and what that means for us today as his disciples. And then we learn about Jesus' purpose in coming and how he chooses to live out his life and the example he sets for us so that we can do the same. To put this as simply as I can, friends, this is a message, a passage all about identity and the way our identity should affect the way that we live out our life. So let's take a look at this story. Mark 1, starting in verse 9, says... At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, would you join me in reading verse 11 out loud on your notes there? It says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. 
Now, while Matthew and Luke give a lot more details, Mark cuts right to the chase. And this is going to be kind of an example of what we're going to see throughout the gospel of Mark. He's always in a hurry. He just wants to get to the point. It's kind of like if you're a parent and you pick up your kids from school, right? And you say, hey, how was your day? What do they say? It's fine. Just cut right to the chase, right? And like that, Mark skips the details, but he tells us exactly what we need to know about this event and its significance. And within it, you're not going to believe this, he alludes to at least four Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled at this moment of Jesus' baptism. And I want to spend some time together with you in this because it's just so theologically rich. The first thing we notice, if you're following on your notes there, is in his baptism, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit as the long-awaited Messiah. Now, just to be clear, this does not mean that Jesus wasn't full of the Holy Spirit. He, we're told in Luke 1.35, is from the Holy Spirit since his conception. But this whole idea of the Spirit coming down on him and anointing him is a clear reference to the Old Testament of the anointing of the Messiah. So just a little context here. You probably have read about some of the Old Testament kings like uh, Saul and David. We read that when they were becoming kings, a prophet, it was Samuel in those days, would anoint those kings with oil. They were, quote, the anointed ones. That was their status. But we read in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus comes, that when the anointed one, the the one true king comes, he will not be anointed with oil. He will be anointed by the Holy Spirit himself. Look at what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And here it is. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So listen, the Holy Spirit's appearance here is no accident. Messiah has come. Jesus is the anointed one that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. If people had any doubt about who Jesus was, this moment would have left little room for speculation. Now, a lot of stuff has gone into what's the deal with the dove here, right? Why does Mark and the other gospel writers describe the Holy Spirit as a dove? This is just more fun for me, so let's talk about this a little bit. This is theology. If you're bored, this is a chance for you to take a nap. Why a dove? Well, some people think this is an allusion to Genesis chapter 8, you know, the story of Noah, when Noah, after waiting for the land to dry after the flood, sends out a dove, and this dove returns with an olive branch in its beak as a sign of hope, a sign of good news, and Jesus' whole ministry was good news. It was a sign of new life. Maybe he too would be the bearer of this good news. Other people think that maybe this is just the way, it's describing the way Jesus is going to go about his ministry, right? Doves, were, they're known as like gentle and peaceful animals. Jesus comes, he is the prince of peace. And if we read, we're going to see as we go through Mark, his whole ministry is gentle and, and humble, especially though to those who were overlooked in society. He would say, come to me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. One more, and this is what I actually lean towards. Some believe this is a reference all the way back to the beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where we read, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
I love that. Like the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all at work in the original creation. And here they are again at work together in the new creation. Now, regardless of all that, that was fun though, wasn't it? Regardless of all that, the point is clear. The Spirit of God is anointing Jesus. He is giving him his identity as the long-awaited Messiah. He is what we will call the new Adam. He is the new Adam who has come to restore what has been broken. He is the promised Savior. Now, if that isn't enough about Jesus' identity, we read in the very next line some incredible things, some more rich theology here. The Father says to him, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. How is that for an affirmation of identity? Now, something, again, we probably don't realize, but early readers of this book would have, the Jewish students of this day would have connected immediately. Right in that one line, Mark is referring to three separate references in the Old Testament. He's quoting these to show us even more who this Jesus is. So you okay if we dig into that too? You okay if we look at how just incredible we learn about these father's words? The first reference is, you are my son. This is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is considered to be, if not the most important, one of the most important messianic texts in all of the Bible. In Psalm 2, we're told that God will one day send a great and conquering king, and this great messianic king is going to put down evil for all time. He's going to set the world straight. This king will be a figure of incredible power, of incredible might, and right in the middle of this psalm, God says about this future king, you are my son. So Jesus' baptism, if you're on your notes, the Father's making it clear, Jesus is the promised king who will conquer the enemy. Then he says, whom I love. This is an allusion to Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where Abraham, you know the story, was told by God that he must sacrifice his son Isaac, whom he loves. Now, if you know the rest of the story in Genesis 22, God says, Abraham, stay your hand. You don't need to sacrifice your son whom you love. He provides a substitute on behalf of Isaac. But what we're already seeing alluded to here is who will be our substitute? It will be God's very own son whom he loves. If you're following, Jesus is God's son who will be sacrificed as our substitute. He will take Isaac's place. And Isaac represents all of us who should die to our sin. But instead, God sends his son to be our substitute. And then finally, with you, I am well pleased is a quote from Isaiah 42, verse 1, which says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. I love and whom I delight. It's the same language here. Now you need to understand that that quote right there is from a completely different part of scripture than the one we read in Psalm 2 or even in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 46 and 50 and 42 and 53 are all very famous passages. And in these passages, Isaiah is describing this mysterious figure known as the suffering servant the suffering servant. In Jewish thinking and teaching, this suffering servant was a completely different person 
than the king described in Psalm 2 or the Messiah of Isaiah 11. This mysterious figure is someone God is going to send who will suffer on behalf of his people. A person who will bear the sin of the human race so that human beings can be healed now and forever. We talked about this person in our Advent series when we looked at Isaiah 53. In verses 5 through 6 of Isaiah 53, we read, But he was pierced for our transgressions, the suffering servant. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, friends, if you're following there, Jesus is the suffering servant who will remove our sin. Now, here's what's interesting. It's pretty cool. The rabbis in this day who studied the Torah and the text of these days, they knew well about Psalm 2. They could not wait for this conquering king to come. They also knew about this suffering servant who would come to take away the sins of the world, but none of them thought that they could be describing the same person. Nobody would think that there would be a king, God's very son, in fact, who would then suffer, right? And Jesus comes, you've ever seen that show, Undercover Boss? Peggy and I like watching that, it's kind of cool. Jesus comes as this undercover boss, right? People don't know who he is. They think he's going to be the king. Even the disciples think he's going to be this great conquering king. And when he starts to talk about the fact, yeah, but I'm also going to suffer. Remember, Peter pulls him aside at one point and says, I rebuke you. What's going on there? What's happening on Palm Sunday when the crowds are declaring him as king? They're welcoming into the city. Well, what's going on is they expect him to conquer Rome. They expect him to usher Israel into a new era of glory, but instead he has not come to conquer Rome. He has come to suffer on behalf of his people so he can conquer an even greater enemy. He has come to conquer death and sin itself. And so the purpose of Jesus' baptism is to show Jesus is bringing together all three of these prophecies. Yes, he's the conquering king. He is God's beloved son. He will one day rule the earth in might and power, but he is also the suffering servant who has come to conquer our greatest enemy, death itself. And so just listen, in this one sentence, the voice from the throne of heaven describes Jesus' identity perfectly. You are my servant who will suffer for all people, and you are the king who will reign forever. Do you know him? His name's Jesus. And we're reading about him right now. He suffered for you on your behalf, and yet we're also told one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, willingly or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. I just want to go back a second with you because I want you to notice something. This is so important. Has Jesus accomplished any of that yet? No, he hasn't done anything. And yet he knows his identity before he does anything. It's the first thing that happens before he even steps out in ministry. The father looks at him and says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus knows his identity before he does anything. And this is the key if you're following it. It is out of his identity that Jesus will fulfill his purpose. 
It is not the other way around. Does that make sense to you? He had to know his identity in order to fulfill his purpose. And here's what I want to say. This is one of the greatest burdens I have. It is the exact same for you, follower of Jesus Christ. This is fundamental. If you want to live the true way of Jesus, do you know that the moment you trust Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, the moment you understood he is the substitute for my sin, he suffered on my behalf, at that moment your heavenly Father looks at you and says, you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He doesn't say that. After you prove yourself to him, he says that at the moment Jesus Christ enters into your life. We have all sinned. We've gone our own way. We've gone astray. Paul describes us as enemies of God at one time. However, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, if you've never heard it before, declares pretty simply when you profess your faith in Christ, you receive the gift of God's mercy to you. At that second, you become his son. You become his daughter. You become his co-heir. You are adopted into his family. You are chosen. He will never let you go. And in you, God the Father's pleasure abides eternally. If you're following, in Christ, we are given a new identity as God's beloved children. We sang about that. But has it sunk in? Has it really sunk into your life? Or do you still try to prove your identity to him by living in a way where you're earning it? Jesus knew who he was. Then he went about fulfilling the purpose for which he's come. Friend, seriously, I'm asking you right now, have you ever heard the father's voice say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this. If you want to follow on the screen, it should be up there. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. That when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who had never had this kind of support from their earthly parents. But it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted in you. And that is before you do anything for him. Do you know that? Do you really know that in the depth of your soul? If you do, write this on your notes with me. Blank, put your name, Steve. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Don't just write it on your notes. Look at it. Let it sink in. Do you know that to be fundamentally true about your identity? A beloved son, a beloved daughter whom God is pleased in before you even do anything for him. Let me say this as strongly as I can because it's fundamental if you want to learn to live the way of Jesus. If you never realize that your identity comes simply as a gift to you, not on your works, you're going to miss out on the good news entirely. As Paul writes in Ephesians, we will simply see ourselves as hired servants doing work for God. That was my early life. I had to prove my faith to God. 
doesn't mean obedience isn't important. We're going to get into that whole idea, but never get the chicken before the egg. We live out our lives based on being a beloved son, a beloved daughter of God. I hear people all the time say things like, well, I'm not worthy to be called God's son. I'm not worthy to be called called God's daughter. I deserve rejection. What does Jesus say? You're right, but I took your rejection. I took your shame. I took your guilt. I took your sin on myself. So stop with this. See, the good news is really good news. Come to the table and join me as my friend, as my brother, as my sister. Live the life I've called you to live. Get out of guilt and shame and fear and live the new identity I've come to give to you. This is the purpose of the Holy Spirit of our lives, right? Same with Jesus, anointing. We've been anointed at the moment we receive him and we are said, this is now who you are. Therefore, live out of your identity, not the other way around. The best way I can describe this, right? The moment our daughter Kirsten was born, I was given a new identity as a dad. We had another child, Will. I'm a dad of two kids. That identity can never be taken away from me. Listen, I don't have to prove that I'm a dad to people. I'm just a dad. It's just who I am. And I want to be the best dad I can be to my children in the same way. We don't have to prove that we're followers or disciples of Jesus. It's already who you are if you've received his gift. And so just live that out. Live that out. That's when obedience really begins to take shape in a different way. I'm living this out. I'm living the way of Jesus because that's who I am. I wouldn't do it any other way. Friends, I believe this is why in each gospel account of Jesus' baptism, his temptation immediately follows that it's not the other way around. Because it's out of his identity that Jesus will now have to face Satan, not the reverse. He doesn't have to prove himself here. He knows who he is, and he's going to live out of that as we move on to the second part of this story. Let's read verse 12 and the first part of verse 13 out loud on our notes together. It says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. I'll finish. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, a good question to ask is, why was this necessary for Jesus to be tempted by Satan? That word tempted can also mean tested. Well, because temptation is a part of the human experience. It is the direct result of our sin, of our disobedience. And so for Jesus to be fully human, for him to fulfill his identity as the new Adam, he had to face what we face every single day. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. And here's the key. Here's the victory. Yet. He did it. He did not sin. Excuse me. If you're following on your notes, Jesus' purpose was to undo Adam and Eve's failure. Listen, here's what's at stake here. If Jesus can resist where Adam and Eve did not, where we do not, then humanity can have a new beginning. We can have a new start. You might even go so far as to say we could have a new birth. Now, Mark, once again, doesn't get into all the details of the temptation. If you want to get into the details, you'll have to read Matthew or Luke's version of this. All he tells us, Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by Satan. One more Old Testament connection here. Who else was led out into the wilderness? 
for 40 years, not 40 days. The people of Israel win when they failed to take the promised land. Why? Because they weren't living out the identity. They didn't believe the identity God had given to them. So they're forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, they face the same three temptations that Jesus is going to face here. So listen, not only is Jesus going to be the new Adam, he's going to be the fulfillment of Israel. What they were called to be, a light unto the Gentiles, a light to all nations. Jesus has come to fulfill all of these things. So why was it necessary for him to be tempted? Well, listen, he's got to go back to the future, so to speak. And where Adam and Eve both failed and Israel failed, he can open a way once again to what we might call the new Eden or the promised land. So that all of God's people who have received his identity can enter in and experience life and life to the full. Now, friends, as a side note here, have you learned yet about the Christian life? That God's spirit will lead us like he does with Jesus into the places that will test us and stretch our faith. This is part of the process where God begins to form our character to look more and more like Jesus so that we can fulfill the purpose that he's come and come to give to us. I've shared before, my wilderness was seminary. Three years of dead dryness in my life, wondering where God even was, but nobody likes it in the time that it's happening, right? You like your wilderness times? I sure don't. But we can usually look back afterwards and say, okay, God was doing something in my life that he couldn't have done any other way if I had not experienced that. Why? Because his goal, remember, is total transformation. Total transformation of our lives to become who we really are. What's the goal of this series? Look back up at that first line. To learn from Jesus, to live the way of Jesus. And if you're following, God often refines us in the wilderness of testing. Spirit will lead us to refine us, to become more like Jesus, but never forget in those moments, never forget he is with you when you are there and that your identity is secure. You are gold to him, but even gold needs to be refined to become more pure. Now back to our story. Whole point, like I said, is Jesus is undoing what Adam did and Israel failed to do. He's living out the identity as God's chosen people. He is the one God chose to do what none of us could ever do. And while Mark is short on the details here, we know that Jesus passed the test. He was victorious over our enemy. And if you're following, because Jesus passed the test, a new way of living is open to us. He fulfilled his purpose. He is the new Adam. He's the fulfillment of Israel. And you and I can now stand before him and say, empower me with the same spirit that empowered you to face these tests, to face temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. We don't pray that with just sort of like, please, pretty please. No, deliver me from the evil one because I know that you can do it. Remind me of who I am in you. Help me to live out the identity I already have as a victorious son or daughter of Christ. Jesus faced all temptation common to man. And we now can face it too. And we now can have victory over it because of who we are in him. Can we read Hebrews 2, 18 out loud on our notes there? It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Jesus resisted where we could not. 
as a real man, as the anointed one, as the king and as the suffering servant, and he can help us resist today. He can help us live life in victory. If you're following because of Jesus' victory, he can help us live in victory too. And as we close this morning, let me just get a little bit practical about how we can do that, right? When it comes to temptation and testing, number one, most important, we can live in victory by learning to live out the identity we now have in him. Are you getting tired of me saying this yet? This is the fundamental part of the gospel. What do I mean? Well, uh, the best explanation I've ever heard is by Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the famous Protestant uh, who who helped start the Reformation. He said, when he was asked this question, how do you overcome the devil? He said these words, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. I love that. Right? We resist temptation because it's no longer me resisting. It's Jesus in me resisting temptation. In Ephesians, Paul spends three chapters telling the Ephesian church who they are now in Christ. It's incredible. If you've never read the first three chapters of Ephesians, go home and do it if you want to be reminded of your identity. But then, like he does in almost every one of his books, in his letters, he makes this shift in Ephesians 4.1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live out who you really are. That is how we resist temptation. That is not who I am. Listen, if you have a cat at home, your cat does cat things, not dog things. If you have a dog at home, amen, all right? Way better. Your dog does dog things, not cat things. Although, have you seen that commercial where the cat's doing dog things? That's hilarious. Anyway, they do that because that's their identity. A cat is a cat. A dog is a dog. If you are a follower of Jesus, you do Jesus things because that's who you are. That's your identity. I obey not to prove myself. I obey because that's the way of Jesus. And I follow Jesus. Second, the way to live in victory is to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but notice even Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Paul describes this in Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. Listen. We have victory because we have the very same spirit that led Jesus and helped him experience victory. What does that look like? It looks like stop living in my flesh. Start living in the power of the spirit. Start living the way of Jesus. Developing things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That doesn't happen all at once. It's a process. That's why we are on a journey walking with the spirit, Paul says. I love that. We learn how to walk in his ways, just like Jesus walked in the way of the Spirit. And then third, we can live in victory today over our enemy by being equipped with the truth of God's word. Again, Mark, short on the details, doesn't show us this, but in each of the temptations Jesus faces, Christ answers Satan with God's truth. He knew God's truth. It filled his heart, and so temptation would not overcome him. So those are three ways, but let's go back. I'm going to say this one more time. One more time. 
It's because of your new identity in Christ that you can now live the way of Jesus in victory, period. Because of your new identity, if you have it, Christ lives in you. Because of your new identity, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because of your new identity, you can understand God's truth and live it out in his power, but never reverse the order of these two things, dear friends. We do not prove our identity. We do not earn our identity. Our identity has been given to us. Therefore, let us live out who we really are in Jesus Christ. As we close and prepare for communion together, here's a question I'm going to ask you to ponder while the team plays a song for us. Are you? Are you living out the identity that Jesus has given to you? You can have one of three answers to that. Yep, I'm doing that perfectly. Nobody in this room could say that. Another answer is, I'm not. I'm actually trying to earn my identity. I'm still on the path of religion here. I'm still trying to prove myself to God. Just let the truth of God's word soak over you in this time. Or perhaps you're here and going, I'm not living out my identity. I'm actually walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. I'm not living the way of Jesus right now. Remember, repentance is a gift. Confession is a gift. I asked if the team would be willing to lead us in a song as we prepare for communion. If you know the words, you're welcome to join, but more this is just a way to sing over you. Um, This is a song that was pretty famous a few years ago, written by Lauren Daigle called You Say. It's a song all about our identity. And so as you're considering this question, as you're considering this message, as you're considering the gospel and the good news of Jesus, we just want this to be like good news, just like the gospel is. Good news. If you know him, this is what he says about you.
possible. The King, the Mighty One, the Suffering Servant, the Substitute. That's how it's possible. And we get a chance to remember Him and celebrate Him. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, I don't know what you're waiting for. It's incredibly good news. It's a new life. It's a new birth. Maybe today's the day, and this can be the first act of obedience you participate in. What a way to celebrate. If you're not ready for that, though, just let this pass. But for those of us, we take this regularly as a reminder of who we are and who he is. Because on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is broken for you broken for you. Every time you eat this, remember me. The same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of victory. Every time you drink this, remember me. continue to remind ourselves of who we are would you stand and we'll close with these words we sang earlier this morning someone to come alongside of you and pray. We'd love for you to do that with us. It's why we're here. Also want to mention, this is the first Sunday of the month, which means if you've been a part of Cherry Hills, you know that for as long as I've been here, plus we've been taking a second offering called the Benevolence Offering. And this offering goes to help the needs of those in our church family who may be going through a time of shortage. 
can see on the screen if you'd like to give to that. Uh, you can do that that way. And then last but not least, don't forget, if you want to get more plugged in, Discover class right down the hall in the classrooms across from the bathrooms. We'd love to have you. But friends, do you know who you are? Let's go out and live it. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like more information, visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook.